As we're getting going this morning, Miss Joanne is bringing packets to the children. We are glad that you're with us this morning, children, to be a part of our sermon time in God's Word. You can use those, fill them out. As the morning goes on, parents, those who have brought children this morning, you get a chance uh, throughout your day or your week to turn back to this and say, hey, what did we learn this past Sunday? It is a, a great challenge that we get to see uh, this morning. And so we're really uh, looking forward to it. The image that I want to put into your mind uh, this morning is when the, the big game or the championship is over and they uh, always... I have the reporter who's on the field or on the court and they get a microphone and they they have to do something, right, to to fill up the time. They got to get a a first-person account of what happened. And so often they'll put the microphone in the player's face and the player will say something about how God helped them win the championship. You ever ever see this happen where the player will begin to reference God? And I'm going to be honest with you, whenever that happens, it makes me squirm. I always get a little bit nervous. I don't know that I want the quarterback being the theologian uh, right at that moment about uh, who God is and how he works in the game of of sports and all this sort of thing. Uh, But here's the connection uh, to where we are today. Uh, Abram is coming back. And actually, the very first phrase that Doug read for us, after his return from the defeat. So Abram is a returning, victorious leader. And he has all sorts of options. In some senses, the Bible puts the microphone in front of his face. What is he going to do? Is he going to credit himself? Is he going to try to uh, get more gain so Abram can be lifted up? Or is there something else? And this is always the good thing, uh, that the good value that is out there when the player begins to reference God. At least they're recognizing that they're not doing this on their own and that the ability is not theirs by themselves. Okay, so we'll let that frame uh, our beginning this morning. Success comes with its temptations. As we will see, as we have heard, uh, read this morning, I I want to start, as we look at this, uh, we'll start with, uh, we'll just take it where the text is. There's two kings Uh, that come out to meet Abram. We see that the king of Sodom went out to meet him. And then in verse 18, we see Melchizedek, the king of Salem, uh, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Now, Sodom at this point is an established uh, territory. And uh, we'll get more into Sodom and its picture in Scripture, which is uh, a little foreshadowing, never good. And so the king of Sodom represents a known place. Uh, the king uh, Melchizedek is, is definitely a mysterious figure. Uh, we don't know much about him. You may wonder uh, what is Salem, the king of Salem. Well, uh, that's the city that we know biblically as Jerusalem. And so he's king of a locality, uh, a known place. But he has uh, a, a, a sense here in, in victory to, to talk to Abram and to give glory to God for his victory. Now, it would have been very common for the people 
in that time in the different regions to worship a god of their own, perhaps uh, their own place, or that was passed down to them. Uh, Keep in mind that this is Abram's story, clear back to Genesis 12, the very end of 11, we see Abram's father. And we, what we've talked about in this series so far is that Abram is leaving. In the very beginning, God challenges Abram to leave his father's house, leave his kindred, leave his country. I know I got him backward if you memorize Genesis chapter 12 and 1 through 3. All right, those aren't the exact order. But uh, that's who he's supposed to leave, and he's supposed to, to leave all this stuff. So if you're sitting here, you're scratching your head, and God can never use me, and I don't know how that's going to work, just continue to have faith that God can do an amazing work. That's what's on, on the page. All right, so uh, we're going to go with this this morning, and we'll see that Melchizedek, uh, he brought out bread and wine. Now, those are uh, biblically loaded images, uh, bread and wine. Uh, we know that Christ uh, served bread and wine at the communion meal, and, and, those are, and there's a lot of connections here between Melchizedek and Jesus. I am going to get to a few of those later on for those of you that might be a little bit curious or scratching your head about that. Uh, But for now, what we want to see is that he praised God. Verse 19, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. This is not a local king giving glory to a local God. He is giving glory to God. Made it immediate a connection. Uh, he praised God. Uh, there's your blank for those of you who love to fill those blanks in, feel like you're getting somewhere. All right. You might scratch a note in here uh, to go and reference Psalm 24. Uh, this is a lifting up of the one true God. It is a, a glorifying of him. He praised him. Uh, Psalm 24 uh, gives us images of a king of glory, strong and mighty. Uh, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors. And you see this amazing picture in Psalm uh, 24. But we also see in the very beginning of that psalm, the earth is the Lord's. And here is a direct connection. Melchizedek lifts up that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. This is not a God that he's calling on to do local business. He is worshiping the one true God possessor, creator, owner, authority of all that we see and all that we know. We may be tempted in this story, this accounting of Abram and how God used him, we may be tempted to look at this and say, wow, Abram is amazing and he is strong, but what Melchizedek does is remind us that God is the one who is strong. He is the one who works He is the one who owns it all. Just like Psalm 24 and 1 and 2. Now, it's just like a a movie plot. Right? They always start good. A lot of times they do. You get this good feeling in the very beginning like things are going. And eventually the story has to include some sort of antagonist. There has to be somebody to provide uh, some measure of conflict into the plot because... Let's be honest, if all movies and all stories and all books that we read were all good all the time, we wouldn't read them. They'd be really boring. 
So just like any, uh, any story, here, here comes the king of Sodom. And he offered temptation. Now, uh, I told you earlier that uh, the foreshadowing was that in Scripture, uh, the picture of Sodom is, is never good. I'll give you an example of that. Jesus taught uh, about hospitality uh, to his disciples. If you go out and uh, people don't receive you, uh, he would say, even the dust of uh, your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And so what Jesus says, look, it'll be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And that's not a good thing, friends. Uh, Sodom, and as we continue to unfold this story in, in Genesis, as God lays it out, we'll encounter uh, the, the end and the demise and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, but we want to know that this is what this king of Sodom represents, even here as early as chapter 14, in that he offered uh, temptation. And so uh, let's think about this. You have two kings who come out. You have Melchizedek. You have Sodom. Uh, the king of Sodom, and, and he may well have thought, well, Abram went and, and achieved this great victory. The, last week we saw how the, the four kings came down and uh, defeated the five kings who were rebelling, and uh, the big mistake they made is they carried off Abram's nephew, and Abram uh, then joins in the battle and says, no, I'm going to go and protect. He's got courage uh, to act out and, to, and to, to go after the promises of God. He brings Lot back, and we saw that happen last week, but it wouldn't be wrong for us at that point to think, okay, well, these kings want to know who Abram is? Who is this guy who comes with 300 men and wins this victory? What's he going to be like? Maybe the king of Sodom says, well, I should probably strike up a little bit of a deal with him, so I've got some security. Maybe he's going to come after me next. Right? So as you think about these stories, you think about the, the way that these characters are interacting, it's okay to kind of wonder, well, what is going on in their motive. And, and we see the king of Sodom's motive revealed pretty quickly and pretty clearly because what he did to Abram, it wasn't just a little bit shady. Okay, it wasn't just a little bit in the gray area over here. What he did was, it was a complete power grab that would have had enormous consequences. And what I want you to do to, to think about temptation is to think about the dilemma that Abram faced. All right, let's go back and, and let's remind ourselves exactly what the king of Sodom said to Abram. Verse 21, okay, he's not participating in the worship with Melchizedek. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. It would not have been illegal according to any law. It would not have been outside of any local uh, custom. It would have been completely socially and politically acceptable for Abram to take that deal. It would have been fine. Nobody from around the whole area would have heard of that story and said, Abram isn't entitled to the goods the king of Sodom is offering him. Nobody would say that. So why 
then do we say that the king of Sodom offers temptation? I want to show you that temptation, yes, it comes in extreme forms that gets us and challenges us and leads us and lures us to color completely outside of God's boundaries. But sometimes temptation is really sneaky in that it can lead us away from God in a way that looks completely acceptable and feels completely acceptable to us and to everyone around us. Temptation can be very sneaky. Within business culture, within school culture, within athletic culture, within church culture, there can be all sorts of things that look and feel acceptable or are certainly no different than anybody else is doing, but maybe aren't exactly what God would have us to do to honor Him. I'm not going to go into specifics today. I want you to see this dynamic that temptation can be very sneaky. Now, I've brought out a couple times in studying Abram so far in that some, some teachers use Abram as a prosperity figure. That if you just follow God, then you'll have all the riches. Apparently, I'm going to have to call my real estate agent after the children's sermon this morning. Okay, I didn't know that that was going to be a part of it. <laughs> no, I'm not moving. All right, don't start any rumors or put any words in my mouth. All right, but, but we think about it. Some people will say that if you will just follow God, then you will get all this stuff and all this money. And, all, uh, and, and it really confuses me. Abram doesn't behave that way. If anybody's a prosperity figure here, it's the king of Sodom. He's the one who's trying to get more in the deal and not Abram. You would think the prosperity figure would, would try to get the most and then somehow work God into all of it. Well, if we were looking for that character in here, it's the king of Sodom, it's not Abram. We'll see a little bit more about that. Okay, now let's drill right into Abram's example. How does he respond to this temptation? He worships God, and he worships him truly. And I, I put that uh, adverb on there, not just to fill up a blank in your outline. Some people talk a lot about God. And they'll say, well, this is what I think about who God is, or I call on God when I need this, and He does this for me. And really what ends up happening in some of those scenarios is we end up creating uh, some sort of a genie in a bottle who just comes and does for us whatever we want God to do to us or for us. That's not the way Abram and Melchizedek are talking about God in this passage. Uh, I put a, a verse up here. Uh, from James 2, maybe your mind went here as well, if you know a little bit about Scripture. Uh, it says, you believe God is one, you do. Even the demons believe and shudder. Right? Demons are well aware of who God is. Many people have views that are formed about God. But Abram uh, worships God truly. How do we know that? He repeats in verse 22 what... Melchizedek, the king of Salem, said in verse 19. So if you still have this on your screen or you still have this in your Bible in front of you, Abram said in verse 22, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. 
Well, that verse 19 said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. So he's in agreement with Melchizedek. This is a God who has absolute authority over Abram's life. And so he is speaking and responding to the king of Sodom from a position of complete confidence. There is no one in his life who will make him more powerful or bring about any self-esteem greater than what God can do. Let me repeat that. There is no one in Abram's life who will make him more powerful or bring about any self-esteem greater than what God can do. That's what we see. The king of Sodom comes to Abram and tempts him to keep some of the stuff for himself at, in reply to what the king of Sodom suggested. And so when temptation comes, what happens? Abram worships. I want us to get this concept. We see it in the Old Testament. If you want to write down a note, uh, Jehoshaphat. In the New Testament, we see Paul and Silas. And, and in both of those cases, we see uh, that, that these characters are tempted. And we see, as a response, we see worship. And specifically, we see singing. And in, in Jehoshaphat, the, the singing is used to uh, really as a defense, as a way to kind of drive away the enemy. And some of us might feel like the only thing that our singing drives away is our friends, <laughs> all right, or people around us. Why am I sitting by myself? There's no one within three pews of me in church. <laughs> no. Singing and worship is an isolation from, from attack and from temptation, and it builds us up and it gives us the ability to respond properly. And so Abram responds in truth. He cherishes God. He speaks of all he is, and he reminds Sodom that God is the one who is in authority. And so think about that the next time temptation comes in or you have some dilemma where you need discernment or some wisdom, and you're calling out and saying, God, would you help me? You can worship God, just continue to speak about all that he is. And so here's Abram, his maturity, the, the trust of his maturity will outpower the temptation. This isn't just about Abram's character. Yes, it is, but it's also about the promises of God. God told Abram he would make him into a great nation. He would make his name great so that he would be a blessing. That was God's promise. Just because the scripture memory challenge from June is over, don't forget those three verses in Genesis 12. Those promises of God are His. He is the one who will make them come about. Now, this doesn't mean to say that Abram is, is perfect. We're still going to come across a major stumbling block that he and his wife trip over in the next several chapters. We're going to come across that. and We're going to see some, some more difficulty that he comes into. But it's okay for us to say that he is maturing here, and in this case, he gets it right and he trusts God. God would be the one who lifts up Abram, not the king of Sodom. This is verse 23. 
that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap. Now, that phrase right there would probably get us a little bit. But really what it means is, I'm not going to take the least valuable thing you own, Mr. King of Sodom. I wouldn't take anything from you. Not your trash, not anything. I'm not taking anything from you. Why? Lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. How often do we feel like we need to be in charge of prospering ourselves? How often do we feel that? Or how often do we want to find protection in a person? Abram was tempted with all of that. We are tempted this way constantly. We are tempted this way politically. We are tempted this way personally, that if we can just get with the right person or the right platform or the right party, and then it will just feel right and it will feel fine, and we'll think that because we're there and we feel safe that God has done it. Remember, friends, Abram could have made that choice. He could have saddled up with King Sodom. He could have taken his deal, and, he, and, and nobody would have batted an eye. They would have said, that looks fine to me. But Abram knew something else was going on. It was a power play. And Sodom was trying to work his political magic, the king of Sodom was, and it didn't work. I put a scripture up here when it comes to riches those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, not a snare into many senseless and harmful desires. Right Then it goes on, the love of money is a root of all evil. So I'm not against people who have a lot of resource as believers. I'm not against that. It's when you love it and you cherish it and it becomes your identity. Then it roots you out. And your soul will crumble because you'll continue just to chase more and more. I know many people who have a lot more resource than I do, and they're wonderful people, very generous to their core. That's maturity and, and trusting that stuff isn't about us or our protection or our need to feel secure. See the generosity of Abram. He gives Melchizedek a tent. Don't miss the generosity. Don't shove Abram into some prosperity category. He walks away from this deal with less. Why? Because he worships God. He has less money, less possessions because he worships God, because he gave an offering to the king of Melchizedek, or the king of Salem, Melchizedek. He gave an offering. And he doesn't take more of what he could when he's tempted by the king of Sodom. That's what real prosperity is. It's contentment. And it's generosity. Now, why is this the sign of maturity? It's because when this happens and we begin to grow this way, it means that other people don't define us. We can have a very difficult time with this. I don't want to breeze past this this morning. Think about those areas in your heart where you struggle with comparing yourself to what other people have, even if they're believers. Oh man, I wish I had what they had. I wish our church could be like their church, or I wish this, or I wish that. 
And sometimes these things go through our minds. And they're not right. These passages scream at us and go, wait a minute, God has promises He's going to fulfill in us and He wants us to use what we have and to be generous. Now, why is this? It's because who God is. God is a generous and a giving God. He gives His Son, Jesus, for us. Jesus comes as a perfect human example of everything God wants to communicate about who he is. Now you're sitting there scratching your head going, how in the world is he going to slide Jesus into the end of this little passage all the way back in Genesis 14? It's real easy. All right? If you took a class on Genesis 12 through 23 and you look for the top two or three examples of connections to the New Testament from Genesis 12, 22, and 23, this passage right here would be on the list. You say, are you serious? King of Salem? Guy's name I can hardly pronounce right. Melchizedek, whatever. I don't know how to say it. How is this about Jesus? How is this about God being a giving God? I'm glad you asked. Here's Hebrews 7. This is in the New Testament. After Jesus has come, and the first generation of believers is beginning to pass away, and some of the Jews want to go away from Jesus and go back to their sacrifices and go back to the law. And the writer of Hebrews writes to show how Jesus is sufficient and how he's above all of it. And whose character does he use to say Jesus is above all that stuff that makes us feel like we've earned our own self-worth? He uses Melchizedek's character to do that. That thrilled me reading this. Look at the way Melchizedek is described here. He's this king of Salem. He's priest of the Most High God. He met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and he blessed them. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness and that he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. And look at this. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. This Melchizedek is not your ordinary king. Salem is not your ordinary place. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of relationship. I'm not going to tell you this is 100% accurate, but some, some Bible scholars think Melchizedek was a pre-New Testament appearance of Jesus himself. And I could see why they would think that. No matter who he is, he is a character who has a divine revelation from God and he appears as a source of God's character of giving and of blessing which stirs Abram's heart to worship. God is the one who gives all the promises. Friends, may our hearts be stirred in temptation to worship God and to remember and to trust only in who he is. If the Son of God... Jesus, his death and burial and resurrection is not enough for us this morning, then I would challenge you to ask yourself, what is? What more do I think I need? And then before you leave today, repent. Say, Lord, I love you and I want to worship you as the possessor of all things, just like Abram did. I want to be content. I want to look in my heart. Am I being generous? Or am I just trying to get more so I can have more stuff that my kids are going to have to go through one day when I die? That's what's on the page. Two kings. To which would we respond? The one who's leading us to worship 
or the one who leads us to temptation. May our love for Jesus Christ, our Savior, make us content and generous, being lights in such a dark place that pursues so much. I invite our musicians to come on up. Here's your challenge as they're coming. The challenge for us this morning is deepening trust. We sang that hymn, Trust and Obey. And we're going to close today by singing the one true God.